How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. My name is Daniel, the D3 Cohen. I am your host, and I am speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters and studios here in my garage. I'm an 18-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you, I make music in my own home studio. You know, as Billie Eilish and Phineas have shown the world, I can be accomplished by young artists and producers working from home. This show is for people of all kinds, people who love to hear about music and love to hear about how it's made, and just about everyone. There's going to be cool stories and interesting insights for fans and pros of every kind. Hopefully, though, the show will be especially helpful for all the people like me working in their own home studios. Some of today's biggest hitmakers work in their own home studios, so maybe we can help one of you realize your big dreams. On our last episode, I had the intense pleasure of speaking to a very talented producer and engineer and a dear friend, Mr. John O'Manson. We talked about everything from his early career growing up in New York all the way to his time in Italy and touring in Europe and uh, even now with his studio in the center of Santa Fe called Kitchen Sink, which took over the legendary Stepbridge Studios of Santa Fe, New Mexico. You can check that out and a lot of other episodes at our network site, pantheonpodcasts.com. You can also check it out at our website, bluegirlproductions.net, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Today, I have the incredible privilege of speaking to legendary audio engineer and personal hero, Miss Lenise Bent. If you don't know the name Lenise Bent, you almost assuredly know her work. In fact, Lenise's discography spans some of the most beloved albums of all time. Steely Dan's Asia, Fleetwood Mac's Tusk, Supertramp's Breakfast in America, and perhaps a particular crowning achievement, Blondie's Auto-American, for which Lenise received an RIAA Platinum album for her engineering, making her the first woman engineer to ever receive the honor. After a break in the action to recover from a battle with stomach cancer, Lenise went on to work in film sound and worked on movies from Shrek all the way to Living in Peril. Once she was in film, Lenise realized that she really wanted to start back up making records, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, I want to get into this interview really badly, but first, I have to ask you a really important question. It's an election year. Today is Tuesday, October the 20th, 2020, and November 3rd is just around the corner. So, are you registered to vote? I want to talk to you briefly about an organization called Headcount. Headcount is a nonpartisan organization that works with the music and entertainment industry to get fans to vote. Don't know your voter registration status? No problem. To update or check that status, go to headcount.org where you'll find all the information you need to be ready for election day. Now, as I'm sure you all know by now after eight episodes of me telling you this, I'm 18. And when I turned 18, it was a very big deal for me to be able to vote. And in fact, I voted just a few days after my 18th birthday. So to all my young listeners... 
to all the guys like me, the 18, 19, 20-year-old kids who just got registered, make sure you get out there. If you're voting at the polls, make sure you get to the polls. If you're voting by mail, make sure you send in that ballot. This is one of the most important years of our lives as far as our vote and every vote counts. So please to all my young friends, first make sure you're registered and get out there and make sure your vote gets counted. All right, without any further ado, here is my interview with Ms. Lenise Bent. Ms. Lenise Bent, welcome to the podcast. Well, hi there, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I did want to jump right in and ask, um, you have a very long career in recording, perhaps longer than anybody I've spoken to in, in so far <laughs> in the podcast. So my, my question to you to start off um, is a little different from the question that I ask everybody else. It's really, what keeps you motivated to be in this industry? It's so simple. It's my basic passion. Uh, that hasn't ever changed once I discovered recording. And um, so uh, that's what keeps me going. In fact, um, I, made, I started out uh, in the music business wanting to be a recording engineer. And I dropped out of university where I was studying television and film and radio production, and uh, once I got invited to Leon Russell's home recording studio, and I got to see a real recording studio. I'd never even been in one before, and it was my epiphany, and I dropped out of university the next day and found a recording school and signed up, knowing that that was what everything in my life had been lining up for, Sure. You know, my aha moment. So with that kind of passion and uh, I was absolutely myopic about it, um, whatever it took for me to get this and to get there is what I did. And um, within reason, I mean, you know, nothing. Well, of course. Yes. Sure. Uh, yeah, that's a given. That's a given. Um, I wanted a long career. Uh, so, um, but uh uh, I made records first, and then um, uh, I took a little break because I got cancer, and so I had to quit. And then when I got well, I went into post-production because the music business had changed, and I did a lot of post for a long time. And um, at one point, uh, while part of my post-production responsibilities was being a foreign dubbing supervisor for DreamWorks, where I was asked to produce the vocals for the animated features in the foreign languages uh, so they could be adapted in whatever language they wanted them to be adapted into. And as I was producing these great singers, star talents, and other languages, I just went, oh my gosh, I miss making music so much. Um, I got to go back and do it again. So I just said, whatever it takes, 
um, universe support me on this. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I went back to making records and, um, because that is my passion. And so that does drive me. Good music drives me. Um, good artists, um, just everything about it, good quality sound, the emotion of it, um, helping to create with that. I, I come from an artistic space. I am not one of the most technical people on the planet when it comes to engineering. That said, I'm clearly, it's required to have um, a lot of technical background to a certain extent, but that is not where my um, passion is. It's not about the best gear in the well, it is about the best gear in the world. I take that back. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> I, um, very much so, actually. Uh, but it's what you do with it that matters yeah. to me. Just knowing how to rebuild a Ferrari engine isn't good enough. You need to know how to drive that Ferrari and take it where you want to go. Well, and, and I think that's something. I think that's something that a lot of people end up happening, especially now with the the advent of youtube and things like that a lot of people technically know because they've been able to learn so very quickly about um okay so i can eq this kick drum to get a little bit of snap if i turn up 10k with a really sharp cue but they don't really know why they're doing exactly and that is uh that's that's really too bad because uh it's it's an acquired skill, and it also is. Uh, uh, I mean, there's science to it. There's basic recording techniques. There's a signal flow, and there's signal to noise ratio, and there's, um, you know, the recording chain and and gain structure and all these things that are vital to a well-recorded recording now again it's like going it's learning anything i think that that um is creative and has skills there are certain laws and certain rules that are important to learn so you know which ones you can break and why you're breaking them and how you're breaking them and um but if you don't know they exist uh it's just kind of frustrating and because I did come from I do come from a place of quality sound recording I learned from the best I've had the great fortune to work on some of the best records uh, historically recorded you know they're they're right in there with the best of them and uh and you learn how to record well that way and why you want to record well. And there's a reason those records sound the way they do. And um, it's because there was attention to that detail and learn, you know, I learned from the best engineers and producers. So um, that um, saddens me in the sense that people, because anybody can afford to record now, yeah. Um, you know, you can, yeah, here's my phone. Let's, uh, I have I recorder. Let's do a record or, you know, I have garage band on my phone just for the heck of it. And, and, um, but I, 
I probably know how to use those better than most people because I understand the science of it. Of course. You know, the background and the basic recording techniques. And so many people uh, don't even consider that or don't even know to consider that. They just... uh, you know, they have, they can afford the technology, they get the technology, they watch YouTube videos, and, um, and then they make a record. And um, some are much better than others. uh, And some people really understand how to use it, and it becomes inherent. But uh, so many people don't. And I'm it's like somebody takes an art class and they paint a picture of their of this flower or their puppy or something and they go wow right. i cr- i created this i can <laughs> i look what i made and so i'm going to make some more and um i'm an artist now and i think everybody has that inherent artist in them um yet artists of any form have to learn the rules and the techniques and practice and acquire that skill. You have to have a talent for it and a desire for it, and you have to work at it. And practice and technique, um, it will help you rise above the, you know, the, the common ground there that so many people sure. are doing it, and so it's very hard for the cream to rise to the top. Um, I know that you mentioned um, Billie Eilish, and and uh, that didn't happen overnight. That wasn't – they were no. at it for years. Phineas and, and she were at it for years, and people need to understand that. They don't understand that. They think, oh, they made it in their bedroom, and it's not valid. And it's like, no, they could make it in their bedroom because – they knew what they wanted and what they right. were doing. There's a difference. Their parents were already in the entertainment industry. Those yeah. two had publicists and some sort exactly. of managerial stuff that that were and and people in agencies working with them for them, however you want to call it, for years at that point. This is, I mean, uh, yeah, and a lot of people don't under don't know that and don't understand that, so that. When they said, oh, how, you know, I'm a voting member of the Recording Academy. And mm-hmm. uh, so our responsibility as a voting member is when we are uh, have access to all of this music that is to be submitted for Grammy consideration and, and then to be voted on, um, we need to listen to everything or uh, – and if you're not willing to take on that responsibility, then don't do it. But it takes a lot of time, and you listen to everything in the categories that you would be best at um, voting for. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have to say that it was clear to me um, there was a lot of time and effort and knowledge and practice and um, – fine tuning and honing of their skills for that record to sound the way it did. And well, I think so- people, and it's strange because, you know, I'm in that generation and yet I, I feel so disconnected from it. Regardless though, 
um, I feel like a lot of people from my generation and the, the, the millennials, the post millennials, that sort of thing, a lot of them just see that record and they go, oh my God, they made it in their bedroom. That's so great. But they exactly. neglect to remember that Billy had released and Phineas had produced uh, Ocean Eyes about four or five years ago at this point. And a mm -hmm. lot of people forget that song exists, I mm -hmm. guess, or they remember that it exists, but they don't remember exactly how long ago it was. Mm -hmm. And then they, they see this girl who just had a hit album uh, <laughs> and she and her bro she and her brother did it in her brother's bedroom in their parents' house and they go, oh my God, this is amazing. Well, yes, it's amazing. Anybody can do it. That This proves it, but at the same time, they've had years of experience. This this was not <laughs> this was not a uh, what's it called a, a random occurrence. Oh heavens no! And it wasn't like anybody could do it. It was they did it. They could do it. Right. That was the difference. Uh, it, it's this isn't an uh, you too can make this kind of record. You know, um, well if you put in the the effort and the time and and the um, passion that they do and did uh you got a chance but also you know there's a bit of magic that kind of happens too i have to say yeah. um that's why it's so creative and that's uh what keeps me going um are kind of the surprises uh and for me making music i i make music um because it makes me happy and it is my passion anymore. Uh, it's not so much about the money. Uh, in fact, what um, uh, really um, supports the fact that it's my passion is that I do it anyway, um, <laughs> whether I know I'm going to make a ton of money or not. And, um, and, and back in, back in the day you, you could, and not only did you, have a lot of fun and be passionate about this thing you're doing, but you know, you could, you know, make a lot of money doing it too. And, and what a great combination. And, um, yeah. uh, sadly not so much right now. And, uh, well, there are many ways to do it. It's just not such a clear cut, you know, make a record. Uh, it becomes a hit on the radio and people buy it and, you know, that tangible thing. And um, so it's a much different industry now. However, my desire and my joy in recording is <laughs> still there. And so fortunately for me, um, I'm able to take on artists that I, I don't have to do it thinking, oh, this is going to be a number one hit or anything like that. If it's good music and they're good people and it makes me feel good to when I hear that demo or that song or just knowing that person and feeling something about their music um that that's pretty much the motivation i need and um if there's any money in it that you know we we talk about the money and we negotiate the money and if it happens then it happens but um mm -hmm. um going in for the right reasons, uh, for, uh, for genuine, um, sincere reasons for wanting to create this is, um, 
how I approach it these days. And that's what keeps my passion going. Cool. Now, in the in this grander conversation of keeping the passion and good music, I I don't know if you, how much you would uh, want to speak on this. I feel like, at least in some of the modern pop, mm-hmm. um, there is some music that is made to be this very mainstream stuff and it's it it's been happening since tin pan alley it's not it's not just now but but it's it's been it's very blatant nowadays because of the style that it's in do you ever think in that vein that some people who are trying to get into the pop space are doing it for the wrong reasons oh yeah well is there a wrong reason what would be a wrong reason for doing it for the money, doing it to, um, I mean, it's a business. You have yeah. to look at it as a business. So uh, if they are creating um, a product that they can market, that they can license, that they, that they can stream, that they can um, twitch, that they can... Mm-hmm. Uh, do anything with and um, you know get a million likes and around the world and do whatever it is and they can create various rev- revenue streams uh, from sure. that product um, that there's nothing wrong with that it doesn't mean it's art particularly it doesn't mean it's um, you know uh, some people can get uppity about uh, music and and how it's supposed to be so meaningful and all of that and I'm I prefer it to be that way myself but I love a song that creates an emotional response whether it's a happy one or uh, one that I just resonate with one that you know has a um a, a riff or that I just want to hear again and again something about that um Quite honestly, uh, those songs, uh, maybe they aren't uh, the, the greatest recorded or written song in the world, but if there's a market for it and it makes people happy and it makes people want to spend money on, on it for whatever that reason is, um, is that so wrong? Not at all. I, I think the I think what I end up seeing with the with the wrong reasons as I was, as I worded the question was, you know, people come into this saying, Oh, we're going to do this. And there's actually, I think there's a genre of online video you can find where people are just doing it for the sake of doing it. And there's no passion or real care about the music per se. And I, I'm always curious to talk to people about those genres, namely because of the lack of passion. Well, at least the, at least in the public eye that they want to show. Well, that's all, as you said earlier, um, it's been, um, present since the very early days of recording. Um, and you have to remember, this is a fairly young industry. Um, didn't start being able to reproduce recorded sound until the late 1800s. And, um, uh, wax cylinders and then 
acetates and lacquers and, and wire uh, recorders wire recorders <laughs> yes all of those um uh and the content um if people people could make a buck on it they would a song that was popular then they would somebody would write another song that was similar to it says well if they like that then i'm going to write this song that they're going to like this because that'll make me money and uh mm -hmm. so that started that way and now with um uh it's so easy to track all the demographics as to what what are the um lyrics or what are the words or what are the key change you know the what's the tempo what's the, what uh what key is it in all these different things that they can break down of that okay that made this particular hit song what are all the elements that created that how mm -hmm. can we use those and what's the demographic that follows that, you know, they can chart the listening audience, they can chart the streaming audience, they can chart everything now. And, um, uh, and that dictates what a lot of people do. Um, as you know, they would say, um, when somebody was a good singer, how, how does this go? They'd say, get me, uh, so-and-so's a great singer, has a hit, get me, somebody that sounds like so-and-so and um you know it just goes on to it's a revenue stream and people jump on that bandwagon and um that's the business end of it and um there's nothing totally wrong with that you know there's songwriting camps and songwriting um you know, um, publishers just put two people together and stick them in a room and make write me a song that sounds like this one and the storyline is this or whatever. And then you come up with that song. And that's, like you said, that's been going on all this time. Uh, within that, uh, there's also some really wonderful music that people draw from their own experiences. And it's just like writing anything. They say, write write about what you know and mm -hmm. um if you can tap into an emotion something that moved you uh a story or a, a lyric or something like that um that you can embellish and grow on and create another piece of music or art or however you want to look at it or a, a commodity that mm -hmm resonates in that direction then um that's what you do and um there's some wonderful music out there that comes from that initial okay let's write a hit song right what, what would be a hit song okay and somebody comes up with one thing and somebody comes up with another thing and and um before you know it a song comes around are you familiar with the tuesday night what was it tuesday night music club it was Sheryl crow and uh kevin and um oh man his name this is terrible great songwriter producer there was several people and what they would do and different people do this and it's kind of a good thing but on tuesday nights they would get together and uh this group of musicians and songwriters and they would um 
start out with an idea or and they'd be playing certain instruments and then after a certain period of time they'd switch instruments you had to switch mm. instruments and it would bring a whole new dynamic or or vibe to the song or whatever but it was it was kind of like a calisthenics for songwriting mm-hmm. and um and great exercises and great challenges and fun and you know um, a lot of good music came out of that and still does. Mm-hmm. Was it uh, Kevin Gilbert? Yes, thank you. I think Bill Bottrell was on that as well. Mm-hmm. There were and, and some... one other who I'm forgetting. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and uh, that's just one example. Right. Well, I mean, even. Um... If we're on the if we're on the topic of uh, people who wrote music like that, uh, I think Carol King uh, gets to and, be in that and, conversation. Yeah, and, and Jerry Goffin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they within that though their synergy. Um, again, that's that's kind of like a Billy Eilish and Phineas combination. You know, these mm-hmm. are uh, extraordinary uh, superstar examples of successful songwriting teams right um um and uh she i i heard something that she said recently that was really nice uh how that song will you still love me tomorrow which was a um song that mostly jerry wrote when they were they were very young but it's a song from the 50s that is about uh a girl having a date with a guy and maybe going a little too far or whatever and wondering, well, you know, uh, will you still love me tomorrow? And, mm-hmm. and Jerry, she said, Jerry Goffin wrote that. And he, she said, she just marveled how he could get into inside the head of a 16 year old girl and, <laughs> and come up with that lyric and that song and that vibe. And, and um, you know, it's been covered by a lot of people. It's an absolute classic. But um, mm-hmm. uh, just, she said how he could embrace that and become that girl and come up with this lyric, which she said was just incredible. So it's 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 fascinating. I'm I love songwriters, and and I marvel at that because uh, I'm not that. Yeah, uh, that's what drives me. I want to record good music, and I just have the highest respect and uh, honor for, in in amazement for these people who can come write these songs that are just so incredible. And uh, mm-hmm. wow, where do they come from? You know, and and uh, they're just a conduit for a vibe, and it's it's to me that's magical. That's magical. Well, and I mean, good songs make our jobs easier. Well, having, yeah. Ha- having the ability to have a good song that's well rehearsed um, with well practiced musicians and well arranged. Make, and well arranged, yeah. It, it makes the recording process that much easier. And as you were saying, there, our job is an art and a science. I mean, I, I think that's why they call us engineers. <laughs> over right. over some other kind of thing and in that in that science 
if their art is good, that allows our art to make that better, I guess. Well, actually, it's uh, um, bottom line, it's all about the song. Yeah. It's all about the song because we can apply our science. We, you know, uh, our techniques, our, uh, our engineering skills, um, everything like that, that we know that we're really good at. But if the song isn't very good, it doesn't matter because it's just a well-recorded, not so good song. And uh, a really good song can be not so well-recorded and it will cut through as a really good song. Now, hopefully that not so well-recorded great song will get to evolve into uh, and get lovingly in the hands of somebody who um, can make it that wonderful great song on all levels but yeah. uh, uh, a great song will will um, override um, a bad song recorded well every agreed time. agreed I mean even in in my limited experience of having people in and a lot of it is you know just my own band and and people doing work uh, with me it, it is that sort of idea of if they're feeling it we get to play into their feeling and get something amazing out of them and i oh yeah that's what that 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 ability to um play into their emotion and get them feeling more um almost like uh let it, it's almost like having a, a piece of fruit in a bag with a banana to make it it's prime ripeness if it's not so ripe yet. In yes. a way. Well, that, um, that's a very interesting analogy. Uh, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of right. Well, you know, we all uh, encourage and influence each other, but what happens with me and how I look at it when I agree to work with a band or an artist, my feeling is I become the new, next new member of the band and I'm their biggest fan. Mm. And those two elements for me need to be in place because you know uh, already that it's hard enough with the personalities and to be in the studio and work on these parts and <laughs> it's a creative yeah. process with creative minds that there's not always a lot of logic involved. Um, there are all sorts of issues and reasons why people are very creative and a lot of them, um, there can be some mental illness involved. There can be all sorts of reasons. And um, there's an, there are so many challenges already in place just to want to make a record or, you know, we're all getting together to birth this baby. And, um, and uh, boy, if it's, if the music doesn't send you and you don't like the people you're working with, Oh, it's, it's hell on earth. And it's not worth it to me. I just, no, uh -uh. wrong person. And that's a very important thing as well. If I hear music or somebody approaches me and says, wow, you know, I'd really love it if you, you know, I love what you did on so-and-so's record. Can you do that for me or whatever? And I say, well, great. You know, let me listen to what you got. Or uh, I've seen them live 
and then I would know I would like them. But if I didn't know their music and uh, they submitted it to me and it didn't move me or I didn't understand it or, you know, it was awful. Um, <laughs> that happens. And uh, But you don't need to say that to someone. All I ever say is I listen to it and... If it resonates with me and I want to do it, then we move forward in that direction. If it doesn't, I say, you know, I um, I just don't think I'm the right person for your project. And that to me, that's a very honest statement because there is very likely somebody else out there who is totally the right person for that project. And that artist or that band deserves that. And there's, it's not right or even ethical in my book to take on a project that doesn't relate to me, but maybe I'll make a lot of money off of it, um, mm -hmm. potentially. I, I just can't go there for myself. And for the reason that I said, it's just there's too much that you have to put into it on your own. We're, we are a new member of the band. We, are, we do need to be that fan. So they trust what we're doing and trust that the place we're coming from is because we're really wanting to make that great record as well as they are. Right. Right. And if you don't have that trust, ugh, that's not fair to anyone. Are you enjoying listening? I certainly am. Hey guys, D3 here. Just real quick, we gotta take a little bit of a break, but we'll be back with more of this interview from Lenny Spen. We're back with my conversation with Lenny Spent. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Alright, here we go. Now, I, what you've been saying reminds me of a piece of work that you did and I think I think this one sticks out to me mainly because it's on my record player a lot but um, but it's something that you also said about the band you worked on breakfast in America right super Trail? yes I did and yes, I, I feel did. like the I feel like in several different um, things of yours that I've read you've said several times that you wanted to work on crime of the century and, and you're a fan actually, of that Actually, what, what I actually said was when I was in university studying film and all, uh, and Crime of the Century came out, and I said actually out loud when I heard it, I said, I want to make records that sound like this. And uh, guess what? You know? <laughs> you got to. <laughs> you know... From a fan perspective, that must have been a total dream come true. Oh, gosh, it was. But I had to fight for that. I had to fight for that record. Um, I was an assistant engineer at the Village Recorder. And my goal when I went to recording school and how I wanted to record, there were a lot of great records coming out during that time. There was, uh, you know, Genesis and 10CC and... Rufus and um, I'm just trying to think of Boss Gags and there's all of these records that just sounded so wonderful and they were so well crafted and 
the integrity of that and Bowie. Oh my God. You know, um, so many great records and, uh, and music. And, uh, my goal when I learned about recording and sound recording and to be a recording engineer and hopefully a producer someday, um, was to learn from the best producers, the best engineers, working with the best musicians on the best music in the best recording studio. That was my goal. So I managed to achieve that by getting a job at the Village. It was called the Village Recorder back then. Now it's Village Studios. Fantastic mm -hmm. recording sound palace. There's still several of them out there. Thank goodness. Um, but at the time, uh, becoming an assistant engineer there put me in a position to be put with the best engineers and the best producers on the best music with the best musicians in the best, one of the best studios on the planet. Mm -hmm. And um, some people wanted to get right into recording and be an engineer right away and all of that. I knew that it would take me longer to acquire the skills I wanted to acquire by working on projects that took a long time. Um, Breakfast in America, I worked on that seven and a half months. Mm -hmm. um, and that wasn't even the longest record I worked on. Um, but uh, I acquired these skills and what you're trying to capture, what the point is, you know, what does a good musicianship sound like? Mm. What do good vocals sound like? What do things really sound like? What what happens when you bypass a BCAs in a console and go directly into a tape machine? Um, what's the difference there? Uh, so that was the level of listening that we were doing at the time. And, and being able to work with all of these different engineers and producers and learning from them their techniques, um, all of their tricks and the things that they, that made them the engineers and producers that they were, their signature sounds, their style mm -hmm. and all of that. I was able to collect from them and fill my own toolbox because sure. I could practice their techniques. I could, I could experience their techniques, especially, you know, one of the things that's, um, yes, it's absolutely important to know about all the gear and, um, you know, gain structure and all those things that we discussed earlier. However, um, knowing how to work with artists and studio etiquette and knowing how to get done what you need to get done in a timely fashion mm -hmm. and inspire that performance and in, and capture that performance and stay within budget and keep people in line and all of that, that was probably the most important thing I learned and seeing how different people demonstrated why they were the hit producers that they were and the engineers back then it was uh, 
very separate. You had an engineer and you had a producer. Now, so many people's roles are combined because the technology right. allows that. And I'm, uh, you know, it's it's shifted somewhat. I I love, you know, setting up mics and and uh, you know running the console and and doing all those things. Um, Me too. So I if if I'm going to Pro Tools, I have a Pro Tools operator. Uh, unless I want to do vocals myself or whatever, but I have somebody doing all of those things. Uh, so I don't have to, so I can give full attention and support to the artist and somebody else can be reading my mind and knowing what I expect out of them. And that, boy, oh boy, I've had some fantastic, I don't want to call them assistants, because they're so much more than that. They, they're they kind of like my team member, but they are at that point, um, yes, I could sit down and I could do that, but if I'm sitting down doing that, then I'm not working with the artist, and I right. need to be working with the artist, even if, I, if I'm riding the fader on in, in the LA-2A, you know, on their vocal. Um, mm -hmm. I'm still in direct line eyesight with the artist, and um, because I have this fabulous person knowing exactly what I want because they can read my mind. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And, and I go really fast, too. You know, I like to move really fast, and I don't like to I, – I want that creative flow to just always keep going. I never want to interrupt, interrupt that at all. So Right. Now, this is – this brings up a question that I – was going to ask later, but I'm going to ask right now. Uh, you've done engineering and production, and like you were saying, in the way you do engineering, at least nowadays in the digital space, you have a, a, a team member or an assistant, however you want to call them, running, um, running the Pro Tools session so you can be hands-on with, with the well, hardware that you're using. That's a that's a specific environment and specific right. thing, but um, yeah, ideally that's what I want to have. <laughs> if sure. I'm doing, if I'm in a studio and doing all of that, you know, that um, that makes me more efficient. Sure. So in that vein, when you're producing, because mm -hmm. in your in the way you engineer, you're very much hands on. Um, with the gear that you're using when you're mm -hmm. producing do you ever have a hard time um not being the engineer in a way um well i'm always kind of it's still the engineer uh mm -hmm. because i understand um what has what i need to do to achieve that thing that i'm producing that i'm right does that make sense? Um, totally. Yeah. So I'm actually doing that kind of engineering, the um, mechanics of running a key, you know, I'd much rather have somebody who sits and types a whole lot faster than I do and setting up my, you know, um, all my different tracks are going to add this or, you know, whatever we're going to do. Um that person is already bam, 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 bam. That to me is a part of engineering that uh, I can really easily let somebody else do. 
when I'm in the, my whole point is to keep that vibe going and keep those people happy and keep that vocalist uh, excited about what they're singing. Uh, Mm -hmm. Vocal production is very personal, very intimate, and it can, as you know, and it can, uh, I come from a place that this is very old school, and that's okay. Uh, I like to work with, when somebody says they're a singer, they're a real singer. And Mm -hmm. if, um, if we're doing a vocal and I'm, I'm getting X amount of takes and, and I have my lyric sheet. I have a very specific way that I like to do vocals. And if, um, if it's necessary for them to re-sing a line, I have them re-sing a line. I don't try to fix it. I don't try to auto-tune it. I don't try to melodyne it. If they call themselves a singer, they can, you know, I'll say, wow, this is so great. We got it up to here. Let's just, let me just pick you up right here and I'll punch you in right here and just do this line, you know, Let's pick that up. It's a little pitchy. It's a little, you know, um, whatever. But I, I produce vocals very quickly too, uh, right. to keep them in the in that space. And the communication is absolutely essential. That's why I can't. I, I much prefer somebody else doing that other thing because to keep the confidence of the person out in that room, uh, if there is, if some people just aren't comfortable recording. Um, they're yeah. great people, live performers and all of that. But if they're standing there in a room with, uh, this intimidating, um, control room and that you see people talking to each other and you don't know what they're saying and all of that, um, that's one of the most important things is to keep that artist engaged in oh, of course. the process. And well, a lot of people don't realize that if, the artist is out there and they've done a take and you're listening and you see people laughing in the studio or something. Somebody may have said something funny and you're, but it's not about them, but they'll think it's about them and they'll go, well, so what's going on in there? So what do you think? Well, well, you know, and to the point quite often I have vocalists record in the control room with me. Yeah. So it's very direct and they feel very connected and they, we move very quickly that way. And so I definitely have to have somebody, you know, running the Pro Tools or whatever it is. Um, right. Nuendo or whatever. Um, and that comes from being a voiceover director as well. Because mm-hmm. I did a lot of voiceover directing and uh, for an- animation. And so you have to get this line and that line and this taken. Then you... you, you comp that really quickly and you have to have somebody who's tuned into you to know that you're going to want that take of that and they've got it comped and you play that back okay great we've got that line let's move on um so that keeps the energy going too and um to me that's that's absolutely essential yeah i i i see that 100 percent, and i I understand where you're coming from because I mean, even here in this converted garage of a recording studio, you know, you could have somebody, especially nowadays, we I've done sessions here uh, amidst the the quarantine. I have a curtain Mm -hmm. that everybody stands behind. So in a a way that's kind of my isolation booth, quote unquote. But most of the time I do have people uh, standing right 
right up next to me and we're both on headphones, be them vocalists or horn players or what have you. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And we can really just get in there. And there is that sort of divide. Um, Actually, in my own band, we had a singer uh, for maybe about five months uh, from late 2019, early 2020. Um, We were an instrumental band. We were trying things out. She didn't really like the vibe, so she left. But um, we were doing this recording of a song that we had uh, lyrics for. And at some point, because she'd never really recorded before, and at the time she was 16, and she hadn't recorded and hadn't really had a ton of live experience. The the, uh, breadth of her live experience was in school jazz band. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there were times where she would, you know, look at me, get kind of scared and go, can't you just fix what I just did? And I, I I get that. But, you know, at the same time, this is this is a living, breathing singer who can do it. Yeah. Who's yeah. Just exactly. letting their, who's basically just letting their fear get to them. Um, well, and that's what's so important to that environment is just essential for making sure they are as comfortable as they can possibly be. And if it means them singing in the dark and naked, then that's what you do. And whatever it takes, if nobody else can be in the room and it's just the two of you, um, well, I always want to have that other person because if they need to sing a little softer, I can speak to them like this and Mostly what I do, too, before we start doing a vocal like that, um, especially when we're just beginning, I I ask them, you know, we sit down together and I say, tell me the story about this. Tell me what the song is about to you. And um, I get what the story is and, and I react to it. I say, oh, wow, that must have felt awful when that happened or oh it must have been so beautiful when this finally happened or you felt so great or something like that I said that's fantastic what a great story let's go out and tell it and they need to tell that story with that emotion that they just told me and um so that that's a been one of my most successful tools to put somebody at ease and for them to tell me the story and what happened that they ended up writing a song about it and mm-hmm. and it helps put them back in that place and then i know also what they want to achieve so i can help pull that out of them and, for sure and that makes a huge difference and so yeah. yeah they get to sing it again i can't fix emotion mm Mm-mm. you know so um and to and here's another point um so maybe it wasn't completely in perfect pitch on this one note but boy did it just like wrench my heart when they sang it it sting yeah it doesn't have to be it as donald fagan would say on one of my early projects and one of the best things i ever learned was he would say, I don't want it perfect. I just want it right. And for Steely Dan, they're, they're kind of the same, I guess. But but yeah. that that always rode above whatever else was going on. Was mm-hmm. it, it had to, it, 
you just knew when it was right and it wasn't necessarily perfect. Yeah. You know what? My favorite recording that demonstrates this is a jazz song. It's a it's a jazz song by a guy named Roy Hargrove. He's a trumpeter. Mm-hmm. Um, passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately, I believe of heart failure. But he has this yeah. one song. It's it's arguably his most popular song. It's a song off of a record called Ear Food. The song's name is Strasbourg Saint Denis. And mm-hmm. in the very last uh, verse, uh, he misses the first note. He misses the first note on the last verse. And, you know, I finally heard that at one point and went, oh, wow, he missed the first note on on the last verse. But at the same time, it took me several years of listening to it and and finally close listening to hear that he had missed that note because the the emotion and everything else surrounding that one note made it not stick out. Well, it's it was what was right. Maybe he didn't miss it. Perhaps. Maybe it, it's very possible that was his intention. Or you know what? That's what came out when he performed it and that's what was right. Apparently it was it went on the record. <laughs> exactly. You know. Yeah. Um and there that's one of the things that um again in old school style of recording and the things there are so many magical mistakes quote unquote that are on great records and uh and those magical moments are the ones that uh made that song or that section or whatever um the success that it was or the how it resonated with the listening audience and and that was the goal back then uh you wanted people to listen to your music and uh jazz yes you tend to do that more you know you get into the uh, micro tonal sounds and all of that which is wonderful however so much music today is created and listened to in such a fashion that you don't want it to get in the way of that thing you're really doing you Mm -hmm. want it and uh, or people um listen and most music is background music i personally if music is on and somebody is trying to converse with me or other things are going on um i will have to be listening to the music that's just who who i am uh, my background um I'm a trained listener, and yeah. um, so uh, I will miss what people are talking about or whatever, because if there's some music that's on, I will just, um, more often than not, just go right to that. And so um, I'm not one of these people who can have background music on. Um Mm. Any music that goes on, it's because I deliberately want to listen to it. Unless I'm streaming uh, a radio show, like there's one here, uh, Eclectic 24, um, Hmm. which is on KCRW. And I will will stream that while I'm 
cleaning things or going through my office or doing things like that, um, paperwork and, and things. And, uh, unless it's a song that's so compelling, I have to like stop what I'm doing and listen to the song, but not every song is one that I intentionally chose to listen to. Um, but, uh, to keep me exposed to whatever's going on. And, and there'll be a series of uh, eclectic songs. So it's not always the same genre. It's not always the same everything. So I love listening to that while I'm doing things, but it will take precedence if it um, has elements to it that uh, really move me. Now, in this grand time, we do a lot of um, the big recording. pause. We're calling yeah. it the, the big In, pause. Amidst the big pause, we do we've been doing a lot of recording, but there there is something missing. There's that lack of well, exceptions, of course, exceptions without all of this. But um for the most part, those of us who are recording are doing it either remote or socially distanced far away from one another. Um whereas a lot of <laughs> a lot of some of the best music in the world has been made i'm i'm assuming uh breakfast in america was done mostly in a room I, oh gosh I, yes I, very I, much I would, so i would assume auto american blondie's record was was done in a room i would assume uh steely yes. dan did aja in a room and i would yeah. assume that fleetwood yes. mac did tusk in a room mm-hmm. um now you've been on all of those records mm-hmm. uh so you can you can answer this from personal experience with all of them. Do you think we're losing something not being able to be together in a room? I mean, I know I know a lot of people have been recording remote, doing collaborations, being able to say, "Oh, hey, I'm in New York, and somebody's in London, and someone else is in Wagadougou, and they can make a mm-hmm. record together." Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think? that's missing something from a, a, a steely dan record done in a room all at once <laughs> uh well um there were a lot of overdubs on asia i just have to say where um the essay would do a tracking date what we called a tracking date back then is different than what people call tracking now they say oh i'm i'm, I'm tracking today that just means you're recording like one person right right Okay, well, a tracking date back then, if you were tracking, that meant you had drums, bass, rhythm guitar, um, keyboard, uh, vocal, probably a work vocal, but, you know, as a guide. A vocal nonetheless. So, yeah, if you could keep it, that'd be great, and a lot of people you could. Um, uh, Probably didn't have a lead guitar. You wouldn't necessarily have background vocals that i'm talking about in the 70s and 80s and in um i guess 90s and stuff i i I was imposed by that um but um as far as steely dan went on asia they often mostly what if you can't get anything else in a tracking date uh, with all of those people playing together. Now, mind you, if they're all playing together and they're the A team, you're going to use a lot of that. Right. And, and, um, and if you're your own band and you are rehearsed and that's vital, um, before going into doing a tracking date, 
um, unless it's uh, a little more organic or something like that, and you're just recording the whole thing and you get good, um, I'm thinking more of Americana and blues roots sort of music or, um, yeah. Uh, most of it needs to be rehearsed well beforehand. So you maximize your studio time and your budget. Right. Um, so when you go in there, you know what you're going to do. And um, that way, of course, you know how to set up. Unless back back in the super tramp days and um, Asia days and all of that, um, people had much bigger recording budget so there was this luxury of four walling a room um much like a lot of um people do for writing now or you know rap mm -hmm. artists do and that's what uh hip-hop and things do for studios but the band would four wall a room and for months at a time and uh kind of move in for example with uh, breakfast in america when they booked Studio B at the at the village. They not only brought in their instruments, but they brought in rugs and plants and and lamps and plant and you know pictures for the wall and and moved in. And they were there. Like I said, we worked pretty much straight through. I think we took a three week break once, um, but for seven months seven and a half months mm -hmm. so they were set up they had what they needed to do but they were rehearsed too they had worked through those songs in the rehearsal studio that they had and um then they'd come in and so they do the tracking date and uh there's a song on breakfast in america called the logical song i'm sure yes. you're familiar with that <laughs> um that song we had uh, everybody in the room. Um, there was certain isolation. Um, and the sax player was isolated in the, in the toilet, in the bathroom, off the side of the um, control room. And that was funny because we couldn't really see him, but you could hear me. He says, my sax is in the rubbish bin. You know, he would, that's how small the little toilet was, mm -hmm. bathroom. And um, that song was done in two takes. They did two passes, and the second one, we all just, there was silence because we knew, oh my God, it just really hit what, how big this record was going to be of the potential of the how it all came together and the energy and all of that i've got goosebumps telling you about it right now it was that moving and they all knew it and there were a few overdubs one of them being a game boy i'm feeling so digital bring bring we did that on the, at the very end um you'll have to listen to that there's a little game you know what a game boy is yes okay <laughs> I I had one at one point. Oh, okay. You were, yeah. Uh, well, that was way before your time. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, that was a vintage piece of uh, 
um, digital toys for you. Um, but um, yeah, we added that. And I guess there were some vocal parts that were put on it. And But that sax solo, that's it. That was that was done in the toilet, and <laughs> uh, and at that time, and it was magical, not just logical. <laughs> so those well, things happened, and um, uh, that that happened because they were all playing together, but they were also a band, and yeah. they fed off each other. And um, d- do I think something's missing? I don't know. Yeah, something is missing, but something else is also there. Uh, I don't think it's wrong. It's just what, how people want to record now. Um, sure. And we have that option. I personally, for me, I'm a people person, and I feel more emotional about a song if more people are playing it at once, but that's just kind of me. This has been a really fun conversation, and truthfully, I don't want it to end. So we'll be releasing a second part of my conversation with Lenise next Tuesday, October 27th. This means, though, that we will not be having our regularly scheduled Music from Blue Girls segment or our normally scheduled Gear Talk this week. However, fear not. I have an exciting update to share with you of a song called Moonlight, which I shared all the way back in episode one. Additionally, this break from Gear Talk this week will give a bit more context to our topic of conversation, which is actually something Lenise and I will be touching on in the next episode. I'm really excited to share the rest of this incredible interview with you, as well as some cool music projects and some geeky Gear Talk goodness. For now, though, I want to say thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoy talking to all of you. Special, major big thank you to Miss Lenise Bent for being on the program and for being incredibly gracious with your time. Lenise, it was an honor to have you on, and I'm excited to share the rest of our conversation with the listeners. As always, this is Daniel D3 Cohen signing out from Blue Girl Productions, worldwide headquarters and studios right here in San Francisco, California. We're ready to record. <laughs>